as we have been able to enjoy this first day of the week, it certainly reminds us of many of the passages of the New Testament that gives us authorization for assembling on this day as a commemoration of the wonderful activities of our Savior, that which he approved and endorsed. And certainly tonight, as we gather yet again for another blessed opportunity, we have already been enriched in the singing as we have participated therein, the opportunity that's ours to enjoy fellowship one with another, and most especially to offer the homage and the reverence unto God that he so wonderfully and richly deserves. As I mentioned this morning, in terms of that which was placed in the bulletin, I had decided to make a change after that information was printed. And the change has to do with an extenuation of, or a continuation of, the lesson that we began this morning. The need for the gospel, part one, brought to our attention three aspects that set in our mind, hopefully, the importance and significance of the holy nature of the gospel. Namely, that without it, we have no communication from God. Without it, we have no hope of salvation. And without it, we are not able to serve God. All of those are certainly very significant things to be absent, and yet, without the gospel, we are unable to accomplish any of them or to experience them. Tonight, as we continue our study, we might first remember just a few of the thoughts that began our study this morning. Remembering that the gospel, that word occurs some 101 times in the New Testament itself. And what's more, those occurrences are such that Thirteen of them are found in the book of Romans. We only looked at three of them this morning, and certainly many more could be listed. We tonight, though, will content ourselves with looking at three more. We will thus conclude by having six ideas, six appreciations, if you will, that remind us of the significance and the need for the gospel. That word gospel, again, simply means good news or glad tidings. <coughs> Excuse me. We came to see that the finest of news that you and I will ever enjoy is that news associated with the wonderful character of the gospel. As we look at that then this evening, let's now look at yet our fourth lesson, continuing from the third one this morning, but the fourth one tonight that will remind us of just how desperately we need the gospel. This first one this evening is taken from the opening couple of verses again in the opening chapter of the Roman letter. Romans chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, we learn a fantastic truth. The truth namely is this, that the gospel separates. Notice the word please, S-E-P-A-R-A-T-E-S, -E the gospel separates. How does it accomplish this? We're aware that a power or a force or an influence today that is able to separate is an active matter. It isn't passive. It isn't energyless. It isn't dead. But yet isn't it amazing that Paul affirms the gospel is able to separate and in fact accomplishes that in the lives of those who are dedicated unto it. I would ask you to ponder with me exactly what it means to say that the gospel separates. The Greek word that's translated that really and actually means to mark off by boundaries. Again, to mark off or position by virtue of boundaries. To say that maybe another way, it is to include the following thought. The gospel contains, if you will, a fence line, an actual identified boundary, and those susceptible or interested in the Holy Gospel are thus not to trespass or proceed beyond it because of this boundary. 
That's quite an idea, isn't it? And quite a marvelous concept to note this character of the boundaries set forth in the Word of God. Might I submit that as we begin the lesson with the first point tonight, it is necessary, essential for the Christian to appreciate those boundaries that God has set forth. And not only to appreciate them, but to understand the absolute character of them. They are non-negotiable. It's not that upon the proper feeling for me, I can trespass them. And God will shower me with either ignorance on his part or choose to turn a blind eye toward it. These are fixed and absolute boundaries because the gospel separates. We understand in our life that many things you and I are called upon to separate. A lady in the making of a cake may separate the yolks from the eggs, the actual white parts of the egg. And we understand that means they are completely distinguished. And one is used for one purpose, another perhaps for a different one. The gospel, too, separates, forms a marked and distinct boundary between that which God accepts and approves and that which is beyond that which he desires, that which stands in opposition to him. I've listed some passages that I wish us to consider that I think help us understand that thought a bit more carefully. In the fourth chapter of James, especially emphasis in the fourth verse reads as follows. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And immediately we come face to face with a problem that is as ancient as the world itself. The world in its rebellion toward God has a marked tendency, of course under the leadership of the devil, to pursue a course of action, conduct, and behavior that is opposed to God's will, that stands in direct opposition to that which God has commanded, that which leads to a better life here, and that which has the hope of eternal life hereafter. James says, listen to me. This world and those that approve it and those who attempt to live in concord with it are the enemies of God. That message was as needful as those 12 tribes scattered abroad in James 1 verse 1 as it is needful for Putnam County, Jackson County, White County, and other counties in Tennessee in the year 2009. The, those who give their diligent heart to the character of obeying God find themselves in the minority, do they not? And they always have. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made this unforgettable statement, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. If we then are in our mind's eye in a position to visualize these roadways that are being traveled, there's great congestion on the wide way. You see, there's a traffic jam because these individuals are not following the straight gate. They haven't entered that narrow passageway that leads with straightness and with a bit of difficulty to that place of everlasting life. You and I, of course, don't seem to enjoy congestion when we have to drive in Nashville or Memphis or other places like that. And friend, congestion on the wide way leading to hell is even worse. We don't want to be traveling that roadway. But it's the gospel that separates. How do we get onto the narrow way? 
In what way do we find ourselves traveling in an uncongested but straight roadway that leads to everlasting life? It's the gospel that makes that distinction. It's the gospel that makes that separation. But notice, if you would, some other passages that reminds us of the power and of the great need in our life to make certain we understand this separation. In 1 John 2, beginning in verse 15, this time the Apostle John has this to say concerning one's love and where it ought not be directed. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, are not of the Father, but are of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We can again see that even here, in the days of the Apostle John, when he was enunciating, proclaiming this to those blessed individuals who received first the book of 1 John, he warned them, do not place your love in this world and that which it contains, because those that love the world and what it has within it are not following in such a way to lead to the wonder of everlasting life. For this world and all that's in it shall pass away. This world isn't permanent. Certainly, we sometimes seem to think that it is. It seems so large and filled with that which is fun and entertaining, and it seems like a bedrock thing. But it isn't. And we ought to not be of those who build our life upon what this world has to offer. It's certainly fair to say that some of the other passages, such as 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, nonetheless still give us an extended warning about what this world has to say. And please note the language, even as Peter uses it here. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, to the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter, what's the world offer you? Corruption. How does one thus avoid that corruption and so behave oneself in a way that's the recipient of the glorious grandeur available from God? Clearly there's a separation needed and it's the gospel that brings it. We should be thankful for the separation aspect of the gospel. It's what forms a line of demarcation between those following in the straight way that leads to life and the broad way that leads to everlasting destruction. We should be so thankful. And in our prayers, often we are in a public way thanking God for this Bible, for the gospel, for the fact we can understand, that we can implement it, that we can live a life obedient to it. Certainly we can understand, I think, why we should be thankful for that. As you look also on that screen, you might notice that there's one final separation that the gospel shall bring about. To this point, our description concerning this separation has been in this life. But might I submit, and as the New Testament so powerfully sets forth, it shall also be the gospel that forms a dramatic separation at the last day of judgment. For when the time comes that each of us shall be judged by the deeds of our body in accordance to the words of this book, we have already noted there's going to be a group on the left, the goats, a group on the right, designated as the sheep, and when they are judged by the corresponding matters concerning the faith, 
Jesus in Matthew 25 made this affirmation. To those on the right, he looked at them and pronounced a marvelous complimentary blessing and eternal at that. Notice that they had followed the commandments set forth in the Word of God. They had been obedient to the gospel, but those on the left had not been. That is one separation for which there's no turning back. There will never be another opportunity thereafter to say, but I'd like to switch sides now. I'd like to turn over and be a part of that other side. Because by that point, the separation is complete. The separation will be final. There will be no chances to go back. This aspect of the gospel, doesn't it set forth again the idea of its need? How needful it is today. And the idea of that separation only brings us to our next point for the lesson tonight. So, as we have seen then in our fourth lesson, no gospel, no separation for God. But in the fifth place, let us look at yet another lesson that we can study this evening. It is the gospel that is to be preached. It is the gospel that is to be set forth. It is the gospel to be proclaimed far and near. The nature of that proclamation and the beauty that surrounds it only leads us to notice again how unique this lesson is. There are so many messages that the human family could proclaim. Take a visit to the Tennessee Tech Library and look at the thousands of books there. Or the Putnam County Library at the thousands of books there. Any knowledgeable individual could stand before a group and open that book and proclaim any number of the messages contained in it. But was that really doing any good? From the perspective of these separation aspects and the three lessons we learned this morning, is there any benefit in that? I think Paul would serve as a dramatic example. When he, in fact, following the events of that road to Damascus, in verse 20 of that very chapter, here not a man not many verses earlier was persecuting Christians, and now he stood in the pulpit and preached the same lesson that not many verses earlier he was condemning. Clearly, he was a convicted and convinced man relative to the truth of those matters, and that charge remained with him the remainder of his days on this earth. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He told the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, and to the brethren in Rome, did he not say, in Romans 1, 14, 15, and 16, I'm deader to preach it. I'm ready to preach it. I'm not ashamed to preach it. Paul had many messages he could have brought the brethren in Rome, but none of them was useful. None of them was beneficial. None of them was vital except the gospel. And for that reason, he again, and this is the lesson text chosen for tonight, he said, I'm not ashamed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The realization then of what was the overcoming character in the life of Paul leads us to notice this is still the message to be preached. Human society has come a long way in many ways in 2,000 years. Think of the technology we have, the comforts that we have, that they didn't. But yet the message of the gospel hasn't changed. Though the words were in fact delivered to Jeremiah in the Old Testament, I'm reminded of some of the statements and the power found in them. In Jeremiah 1 verse 9, God said, Behold, I've put my words in thy mouth. 
Do we not read in Jeremiah 26 that God then said to him, You go and stand in the temple and you preach the preaching and the words I've given you to preach. Jeremiah had no authority to preach anything else than what God had given him. That's not any different today. And hence, when Ben Flat stands in this pulpit beginning next Sunday for our gospel meeting, this meeting about good news, he'll proclaim the glorious goodness of the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8. And as he does so, we and those that visit with us and those present will be encouraged, edified, and built up in that which is the most holy faith, 2 Peter 1 verse 1. Could we not hear again the marching orders that Paul gave Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 1? Especially when we arrive at verse number 2, he said, Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. That is a dire warning, isn't it? Here was the aged Apostle Paul giving some words of wisdom and inspired words of wisdom at that to his young protege, Timothy. He said, Timothy, you preach the word. You be instant. That means when it's convenient and when it's not, you still preach the word. When they have an idea to hear it or even when they have a rebellious ear to be less than enthusiastic about it, don't you change your message. You preach the word. Today, that still should ring loudly and clearly in our mind. Preach the word. And hence, when opportunity affords us that, and the opportunity is set before us to have the word of the gospel upon our lips, ever ready to share it forth, the wonderful words of life. Isn't it interesting that some of the things that we can also see from the hand of the Apostle Paul especially that overwhelming affirmation of 1 Corinthians 9, 16. Here was an epistle in which the grand apostle Paul was often called on to defend himself as an apostle. And yet in chapter 9, verse 16, he said, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. That little three-letter word, W-O-E, often carries with it such an overwhelming thought. And doesn't it do so here? Woe is me, he affirmed if I preach not the gospel. Doesn't that remind us of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20, verse number 9? When on that occasion, even Jeremiah affirmed that he had become a bit discouraged. It had seemed as though when we read that book, various individuals had lost interest in what God had to say, and they had begun to turn aside from it. That had seemed to affect Jeremiah with a bit of despair, a bit of discouragement. But then we find this verse, Then I said, I will not speak of him, nor make mention of his name. But his word was in mine heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I was weary with forbearing, and I could not contain. Jeremiah quickly jumped out of his despair. He said his word was in mine heart like a burning fire, and I couldn't contain it. I had to speak the word that the Lord had given me. I had to proclaim the message he had shared with me. And he said thus, I went right back to the places and began to preach again. Those same words that before had been so meaningful, that had been so special in my life. Notice again, thus the gospel is the message to be preached. Is it not thus also entirely fair to say that no gospel, you and I have no message to preach? We have nothing to aid and to respond and remedy the sin-sick souls of the human family. 
We can't come up with any message to do it. We are powerless to do so. But it is the infinite and awesome God of heaven that has not only set forth the gospel, but has done so in the earthen vessels that are you and me. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7. Though you and I may be those balls of mud, earthen vessels, we nonetheless have the capability to proclaim the unsearchable riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When thus we are able to do, we are sharing forth the preaching that God has allowed us the great privilege of sharing. In that sense, we are his fellow laborers, aren't we? In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 9, we read on that occasion that you and I, mere mortals, are those who are fellow laborers and fellow husbandmen as workers with God. Even Paul made the statement that he and Apollos both aided or worked with God in the labors in the vineyard. Sometimes we sing a song in our book about the laborers in the vineyard, the workers in the kingdom of God, and thankfully each of us are able to occupy that position and to be blessed with the treasure of being able to assist in the carrying forth of the blessed message of the gospel of Christ. No gospel, no message to be preached. One of the thoughts then, lastly, on that particular sheet would simply be the fact that this preaching is, of course, of the most benefit as we appreciate what it allows to take place in regard to the judgment. Individuals can be prepared for that eventuality, that finality of that day of judgment. Perhaps all of that leads us to appreciate, interestingly, the sixth and the final lesson that we'll look at in regard to the things that we need in terms of the gospel. Notice as we look at this sixth one, we come to appreciate that it is the gospel that helps us understand the great vitality and the great standard of the judgment. One of the statistics that I had listed on the, pe the previous screen and one that also ties closely to this one is the fact that this world's population is, of course, vastly increasing. This population that's now well over 6 billion, in fact, racing towards 7 billion. But isn't it interesting that statistically there are two deaths every second. Two people lose or are in such a position as they die every second. That means in the course of time that I'm up here preaching, just the amount of time I'm up here speaking, think about the fact that there are well over a thousand that are going to die. Are they ready to meet God in judgment? When they slip from the scenes of this life and shall at some point stand before the presence of God in judgment, are they ready? Two every second. As you and I contemplate the judgment, think about what that shall bring to bear. The gospel is, of course, a critical element, and Paul said so. In Romans chapter 2, verse number 16, notice the role that the gospel is going to play. When we discussed that on the Wednesday evening lesson not many weeks back, we saw in that verse the following idea. When God shall judge the secrets of men according to my gospel. The gospel is going to be utilized and used as the standard by which your life, mine, and all the others in this Christian era will be made acceptable or unacceptable. And which will it be? Where will we stand? What about those individuals who aren't here tonight? who've chosen to go fishing or golfing, who've chosen to stay at home and watch television, who in fact never even had the thought to come. 
Do you think they're ready to meet God in judgment? Do you think that they, if they died tonight, are ready to meet the presence of God in terms of the judgment? Hebrews 9.27 tells us, And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. As we think about those two people every second, might we ponder then the gospel? For Paul said they're going to be judged by my gospel. We affirmed as we studied that verse, that pronoun my is a possessive adjective that simply identified the gospel in the following way. It's not as though Paul came up with it. It's not as though it was his idea. But what he understood and meant by that was that in a sense as he had the opportunity to labor in it, it was a gospel he felt that he had a strong degree of attachment to. And he, as, his, as he, he was able to proclaim it, was such that he termed it as his. In the same kind of a way, you and I can speak about that it's your gospel and mine. Again, not that you, we came up with it. Not that it belongs to us. But when you and I are obedient servants to it, and when we allow it to direct and control our behavior and our life, we too can place firmly our hand in the hand of God and say, God, I'm thankful that you've allowed me to know this gospel. And by, obedient, by my obedience, I've allowed at least a part of it to be mine. The gospel. Contemplate with me the nature of the reality of this judgment. We know that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the Hebrew writer tells us. And yet two every second are leaving this life. And there's nothing between them and the judgment at this point between changing, altering anything in their life. Every word that was spoken, every deed that was done, every thought that crossed their mind, if it was a sinful one, without the forgiveness of God, they're going to have to answer for every one of them in the judgment. Isn't that frightful? That also impresses upon you and me the same idea, doesn't it? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 reminds us we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done whether it be good or bad. Everything, if it's unforgiven, if it has not been wiped clean by the blood of Christ you and I are going to have to answer for it. I'd submit to you that's a frightful circumstance, isn't it? How we need the blood of Christ then in the character of the gospel to wipe these sins away, to take it beside the character of my name and yours. I don't want those marks beside my name, and you don't want them beside yours. When Christ's blood cleanses them, that's the most perfect eraser the human family has ever known. When you and I use an eraser to erase something from a sheet of paper, there's often a smudge mark. There's often a a reflection that lets you still know what was there before. The eraser that God holds, namely the blood of Christ, is perfect. When it forgives, when it cleans, there is not the slightest emblem that anything was ever there. That's what the gospel does. The gospel thus, when Paul said that each shall be judged according to my gospel, he let us know that this is the perfect and ideal standard. Isn't it amazing to think about that standard from perhaps another approach? You'll notice also in Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, there as Paul stood before the learned intelligentsia in Athens, he simply affirmed to them the character and the need for the gospel, but he couched it in language like this. He said the times of this ignorance 
God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. There was a time that God winked at the ignorance under the imperfect laws of the Old Testament. But friend, the gospel's perfect and God no longer winks at it. He commands all men everywhere to repent. No nation exempt from that commandment. Thus today we have the opportunity to preach this gospel in every nation under heaven and to appreciate it's as needful there as it is here. It is as pertinent, as important, as significant for the souls of individuals anywhere. There have been those who have often remarked about universal languages and messages that the whole human family can understand. Certainly there are but very few in the world that could be listed. When you and I speak English, somebody in Germany is going to have a hard time understanding because they don't speak English like we do. There have been some who have said music is something the world over understands. Others have said it's mathematics. And though there may be something to that, I'd submit both fail completely compared to this. Everybody needs this. And every person under heaven is susceptible to its teaching. This is the universal idea. And even the Bible holds within it the germ of that universalism, doesn't it? In the sense that Christ himself said, you go and preach to every creature under heaven. Mark 16, verse 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus didn't leave anyone out, did he? He said, you go and preach to every creature under heaven with this message, the message of the gospel. That only helps us appreciate furthermore the frightening exposition of 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7. For on that occasion, as Paul again turned his attention to the Thessalonian brethren, he had a very powerful word of comfort for them, but it was couched in language that may seem unusual. The reading proceeds as follows. As he attempted to affirm the comfort that they were to appreciate and to know, he in fact made the statement in reference to the judgment. He said, in terms of the comfort and in terms of the frightful disposition of the others not ready for it, the language, the writing, when Jesus comes back in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. What comfort is there in that? The previous verses, verses 5 and 6, were to tell us. For in those verses, Paul thus said, You Thessalonians, in obedience to the gospel, are not those that are subject to this. This is what awaits those who have not obeyed the gospel. This is what awaits those who have never relinquished their life in obedience to Him. One more time, are we not able to see how vital the gospel is? For that which awaits those who have not obeyed it, flaming fire, eternal punishment, removal from God, separation from Him, the frightening aspect of that maybe only reminds us of the other side of that coin, the marvelous rest that awaits the faithful. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Revelation 14, 13. And can we not see eight chapters later in Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are 
those who do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city, partaking of the tree of life. We, in essence, by using that verse, have drawn to a close our sixth lesson for today, the need for the gospel, set forth in this latter part in the following way, no gospel, no preparation for the judgment. Maybe it would be wise to summarize in a brief way the six lessons we have then considered today from the Roman letter. These six lessons, again, very briefly stated in the following way. No gospel. No message of God for today. That is to say, no communication for my life and yours today. No gospel. No service to God today. No gospel. No salvation today. No gospel. No separation from sin. No separation in the right way at the judgment. No gospel. No, no message to be preached. And sixthly and lastly, no gospel. No preparation for the judgment. We again have our gospel meeting now, beginning in a mere seven days. May we continue to pray, to think of, to work on behalf of, to invite others to be with us. But may we ourselves make the determination to be present, to lift up and encourage and edify others as they are here. Tonight, as we examine ourselves, whether we be in the faith, where do you and I stand? Have you welcomed the gospel into your heart, understood it, and obeyed it? as we read of in Romans 6, 17. If you have not, let tonight be the night that your life with Christ begins. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You need to repent of the sins in your life. You need to confess the name of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. And then you are a subject for baptism. If we could be of assistance in the accomplishment of that tonight, it would be a life-changing event for you. If you have become a Christian in some stage in your life, but you no longer are a faithful one, perhaps your life is not really any different than a typical person in the world, you need to make a change, for that's not going to do. That's not acceptable. And that's not my opinion. That's what the Scripture says. You see, you and I are told, seek, put your mind on things above. Seek not things that are beneath, Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. If you and I set our affections on things above, the matters of the world will be secondary in importance. They will not be the primary matter in life. Tonight, if you need to respond in a way to beseech the prayers of brethren unto God that he will forgive you of those things, that could be accomplished very swiftly, very quickly, and in a way that will again be a life-changing thing for you. If we could be of help in either of these ways, we would only ask that you kindly let us know that while together we stand and while we sing.